When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Kurt Schilling Baseball Show, episode 56. Got a really, really cool uh, gig going here. Uh, got a former teammate of mine you're going to meet uh, shortly uh, who was, well, all kinds of special, and you'll you'll understand why. But I, I wanted to talk about it qu- quickly before this interview about a story that, that popped up over the weekend. Um, uh, George Kirby is a pitcher for the Seattle Mariners. And um, he they uh, they lost the game seven four the other day to Tampa. And uh, after the game, I, and I'm going to have to tread on this lightly a little bit. Uh, understand the context with which I'm coming at this. As someone who did this, the job that he's doing, uh, he's done for less than a year. I did for twenty. Um, in addition to that, uh, spent my whole life on the baseball field from the time I was five, like, like a lot of professional baseball players. Um, but unlike a lot of them, I was, uh, consumed by the game. Uh, I don't know. I never looked at pitching as, um, a job. I looked at it as like a a craft, uh, an art. And I studied the best, uh, got around the best, talked to the best, uh, then went outside the game and looked and and fought to to talk to the best and get time face time with people that were great at stuff and always wanted to know what made great people tick no matter what they did. Um, that being said, uh, I'm just going to read the quote and then I'll go from there. So he comes out of the game, um, and he says, uh, "I don't even know how to set this up, so I'm just going to say it." The quote is, I wish I wasn't out there for the seventh, to be honest, Kirby said. I was at 90 pitches after six innings, which is 15 pitches an inning, which is normal. Uh, and I didn't think I needed to go anymore. So, Bill, you and I have talked, and, uh, you know, John, you know how I feel about this, but you and I have talked before this about – um you know, you asked some, I think, legitimate questions from a fan's perspective about different angles to go at this. Um, and there really isn't any different angles. So there, and I always, my dad told me when I was young that, you know, there are times and moments in life when you can see inside a person um, to a makeup, to something they say or something they do um, when no one's watching and when everyone's watching. Um I don't know how he said this, first off. And let's be clear a couple about a couple things. This isn't the first time that thought's ever passed through his mind. Um, and this is a guy who look, was looking to blame anybody but his performance. And, you know, he came out and said, you know, that wasn't me. I made a mistake and all the things go with that. Well, a mistake is is... And I said this to you, Bill. Uh, a mistake is me calling you George, Bill. That's a mistake. This is uh, a a uh, a peek in to what this guy's made of. Um, I don't 
ever in my and, and I'm not you know because here's the, here's the response from a guy who has the makeup you want in a pitcher. Yeah, you know what? I was I I got tired in the seventh, and I didn't get the job done. And you know it's on me. I should have said something after the sixth. I was gassed. Uh, I thought I could give him another one, but I just didn't have an in the tank to get it done. That's that's the comment. I wish I wasn't out there for the seventh, to be honest. I was at 90 pitches. The hardest part of this quote, and I didn't think I needed to go anymore. Now, there are so many things wrong with the last part of that quote, but part of that is not his fault because this kid, uh, let's see, in his career, going back to college, his uh, uh Highest innings total uh, was this year. Last year, he had 130 innings. He had never pitched more than 80, 90 innings in a year, going all the way back to 2018 when he was at Elon College. Um, 90, 13 in eight in uh, or uh, in minor league baseball, he threw 13 innings. 88 the next year with 23 in in low A ball. Uh, 67, uh, 80, 41. I mean, so. And, and as a starter, almost every 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 start, he's made one relief appearance in the minor leagues, uh, ten in college. So this is he's been a starter his whole life. Um, he's a starter with with a mentality. I, I don't even know what the mentality is. I really, I, I mean, I really don't. Um, you know, he's got one career complete game in 115 career starts. So maybe. He does think his job is to get six innings out worth outs. Um, I've never seen anybody coach that way. Uh, I know it. part of the thing now is, you know, um, I guess get a six or whatever it is. I, I don't, I don't, I, it's hard for me to get, wrap my head around this because there's so many things that, 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 and and this is not anything I wouldn't say to any to his face. I mean, it it it's not per, like it's not personal. And again, I'm critiquing a major league baseball player, so I'm critiquing a guy who's probably better at baseball than most of you were at anything ever in your lives. And that's not condescending. It's just he's the part of the one half of one half of one percent in the world um, who's earned the right to play, and and he has earned the right to play in the big leagues. The the one thing you said to me, Kurt, that really rung true to me was. Basically, what he was saying with that quote was, here, let's give the ball to somebody else because they're going to be better than me. Yeah, I never came out of a game in my life where I thought the guy coming in behind me was going to be better than I was. And there are, again, so many things. I mean, this kid, first off, let's be clear, he's a strike-throwing machine. In the last two years, he's thrown 295 and two-thirds innings. He's punched out 284 guys and walked 38. That's like potential ace kind of stuff. Um, but you're looking at six innings to start. And I guess that's that's what they're after, I guess. Or what he I again, I just the whole the that, let me go back and make sure I'm saying it verbatim. I wish that I wasn't out there for the seventh, to be honest, and I didn't think I needed to go anymore. I I, I don't – and for anybody that wants to, to be upset with me for critiquing, the fact of the matter is I can't fathom being anywhere near a comment like this 
in any capacity mentally. And, um, you know, I, I, I wrote you a, 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 and I wrote, Bill, I wrote you an email earlier and, and I, I, you know what, I'm just going to read off of this in the sense, you know, I wrote Bill and John and I were talking before the show and I, and Bill had asked me about, um, you know, how I might take. And I said, here's what I want to, I, here's what I know. And people that have never done it don't, that's not a mistake. A mistake is me calling you Bob. You don't say things of that magnitude off the cuff. No one does. That's not the first time that thought has ever popped into his head. I promise. That's a character trait. It's harsh, I guess, but that's what it is. Think about this. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you said, bah, I'm getting beat, not my fault, and never thought to say that out loud? Only weak-minded people think like that, and I mean weak-minded in an athletic sense. I can't get into the head of someone living a normal life. I've never been normal from a mental approach. And, and I tell a story about Joe Madden, uh, the manager. Uh, I met Joe when I was 16, and he used to run a camp in Arizona. I used to go every – it was over the Christmas break, and that's where I spent my Christmas break at Joe Madden's baseball camp. And uh, when I was 17, I think, Joe was – there's about 400 kids from all over the country. And the whole thing was run by manu- uh, major league scouts and coaches. And Joe said uh, one one time early on, this is I went to it like four four years in a row, and Joe said, you know, based on the percentages, guys, you know, only one of you guys is probably ever even going to get a shot in the big leagues. And I remember to this day, the second he said that, the first thought that went into my mind was, man, I feel bad for these 399 kids. I mean, what are they going to do? Like, I knew that was going to be me. And, you know, I, I don't know how that sounds, but that was always how I went at things. With I was always going to be the exception. Uh, and I was going to work to make myself the exception. Um, and most guys in the big leagues have done that. Um, fear of failure is as motivating a thing as anything in, in existence for, for great players. I mean, I drove all the great ones, and it was certainly – Drove me. I, I I hated losing so much that I I promised myself and swore myself I would do whatever I had to do to make sure it never happened again. And I lost 146 games. And I swore after every one of them, I would that was it. Um, and it was I was resolute about that. And and you know I I just can't put my hands around this quote because this is not something a big league pitcher with any talent and, and hard mental makeup says. You, you just and, and again. I don't know this kid and, and, you know, I'm sure he's a great kid and, and a, a, a good teammate, but I'll, I could never coach him again into the seventh inning and, and be thinking to myself, you know, he's got the ball where he wants it. Cause now he's going to cut off his nose to spite his face. He's going to be in a situation now where he's not going to say anything if he's exhausted because he doesn't want to look like he's weak minded. And he ends up costing his team. Like I said, the the comment after that game was one of two things. I didn't do my job. I got outpitched and, and I should have done better. Or, you know what? I was gassed after six. I should have said something. Um, and, and let me circle back. This is this kid's first full year in the big leagues. So he's young and there's a lot of things to learn. But this comment and this quote wasn't a mistake. This kind of goes, this kind of gives you a peek inside of the mental makeup of of an extremely talented young man. And uh, I really, really hope that uh, he finds a way to address this uh, internally. I mean, you know, your teammates are your teammates and they're going to say and do, I mean, you you owe them an apology. You owe your manager an apology as well uh, because you threw everybody under the bus but yourself. 
Um, and apparently he did apologize to Scott yeah, Sanders. Right. So. Yeah, no, no. I, and, and you know, like I said, he's a young kid and all the things that go with that. But but this is not a young kid comment in the sense that he's a young man. He knew. And again, you know, it's like uh, and I, I'm not comparing him to steroid users. But you remember every time somebody got caught using steroids, my first thought was, well, OK, this is not the first time. Things like this. He, this is not the first time this kid's ever had this thought and that. Every coach that he's ever had should be kicking themselves in the ass that they let him go through their franchise or their team and they didn't teach him better. That's just that's that's on them. And baseball has fostered this kind of mentality too. Um, yeah. Well, you, and speaking of mentality, yeah. the guy who's about to join us. Yeah. So this is a guy. The guy that. you guys are about to hear from. Uh, I promise you, never uttered anything close to a quote like this in his entire life about anything he ever did. Uh, I had the privilege of being his teammate for a couple of years in Boston. He was one of the absolute cornerstones of that 2004, 86 year drought ending run we had. He he pitched some enormous innings. He was he was the fifth man in the rotation, but we had he was he was anything but a fifth man. Went on to have a phenomenal career, a long career, um, and you're going to hear about his what he's up to now, including his incredible music career. Uh, and you're going to hopefully after this, you're going to go to YouTube and look at the video he references because it's one of the most amazing things you'll ever see. Um, Bronson Arroyo is, is going to join me here in a minute. And uh, I want you guys to enjoy this for all it's worth and soak it in because he's a good he's a good man. He was a great teammate uh, and he's having a lot of fun in life and he earned every aspect and every bit of it. So have a listen to uh, Bronson and Arroyo and I hanging out. Welcome to the show. Another former teammate of mine, a guy who I had the uh, the honor of playing with uh, briefly in Boston. And it was briefly because he was such a nice guy and, and was so nice to the team that they took advantage of him. Uh, uh, right-hander Bronson Arroyo B. Hey, what's going on, big man? Oh, man. Just hanging out in Cincinnati. <laughs> now, have you, you've been there since you retired, right? I mean, that's where you, uh, uh, you stayed because you finished yeah. your career. There. Yeah. Yeah, you know, playing nine years here, it's nice to go down to the ballpark. I also married a hometown girl here, so uh oh, uh, you know, her family's here, and but it's nice to go. As you know, you know, you, you can't just walk into a locker room off the street after you played for a team for a couple of years. Like you need to be there long enough to where, right. you know, the, the clubhouse guys and the front office still kind of respect you in a certain way. And I could still go into the clubhouse and plug in a guitar and play for the guys and eat their right. food, clean some shoes. So it's it's fun here. Well, I I I, I want to mention a couple things. First off, um, uh, I'm gonna uh, Bronson and I played together in in 04, uh and 05 before he was traded, and we'll, I'll get into that. But um, I I got a chance to play with him early in his career. He had he had he had been with the Pirates before coming over to Boston, um, and had uh, bounced back and forth, pen starting, pen starting, not and it wasn't it was it was. A unique situation, in my opinion, and from my perspective, in this sense, guys bounce back from the rotation and the bullpen generally because of performance. They're not good enough to be a starter, or they're not good enough to be the closer. This was the opposite. This uh, uh, Bronson could throw a nine. Bron I argue that when people talk about Nolan Ryan throwing his two hundred pitch games, the only guy I ever played with that was like that was was this guy. Um, he never, I, I never saw him ice his arm, uh, which I can't begin to tell you what a freak thing that is in professional sports, but he took the ball every time it was handed to him. And my, I, I'll tell you, B, when we first got to know each other, my first impressions, um, 
first of all, you were just scrawny and skinny as hell. And I was like, oh, my God, are you seriously going to try and put innings on this body? Um, But the second one was, and both of them were horribly wrong, and I'm glad they were. The second one was, you were a lot like Scott Rowland to me. You, You were a guy who had a much bigger life than just the game. And I never did. I was consumed by the game, right? I always felt like, hey, listen, if you're not consumed by the game 24-7, you can't be as good as you want to be. That was, that ended, I realized that ended up being, that's how I was. But there were other guys who could come to the park at 7.05, put the uniform on, do their job, be as good as they could be at their job. And at 10.05, they went home and they were something else. And and I, I look back now and I'm envious of that because teammates like you, and I had them, I, I was like, come on, man, you got to get more serious about the game. And it was actually the opposite. It was actually Kurt probably should have been less serious because he would have enjoyed it more because I watched what you brought to that team. And, you, you know, I talked to Johnny recently and, and I, I told him, you know, we, we had that idiot's moniker, so to speak, and we sure as hell looked apart. But people can't understand how close that group of people was. And, you know, we went on the road and you and Millar would bring your guitars and we would kick back in a hotel room. And that's what we did. You know, I, I always tell people playing baseball in big leagues is like going to college, being in a fraternity, getting paid millions of dollars and not having to go to class. Like we just hung out. We drank beers and listened to music and did stuff. And I want to know from you, you were young at the time. You were 26 when you came to Boston, um, which is in the big leagues is young. Where did you see your role on the team in 03 and has it evolved into 04 and, and, and what, what did that mean to you? You know, I'd been eight years on a pirate organization. And so, you know, I thought of myself at that time in the minor leagues, you know, I'm 40 games over 500, man. Like Kurt, you could respect this. Nobody really knows what 84 wins in the minor leagues is like, right? That's like unheard of. I've got 1100 innings down there and the pirates really kind of didn't, they didn't, they didn't free me up. I pitched in the minor leagues just off the top of the head, you know, being creative as I was. But when I got to the big league level, they didn't let me shake off Jason Kendall for a few years. And it was very difficult to pitch that way. So when I got when I got over to Boston, I had a great year in AAA in 03. I didn't really expect to get called to the big leagues because the team was so good in 03. But a couple of guys got hurt. I threw a perfect game. They were getting a lot of pressure from Japan to sign me. And so Theo finally called me up. And when I first got there, Grady Little basically said, hey, man, just, just go along for the ride, man, because I don't know how much you're going to pitch here. And next thing you know, I started pitching the back end of the games because the, everyone in the bullpen was struggling so bad. Right. I wound up making that playoff roster in 03. So by the time 04 came around, I felt like I wasn't sure what my role was going to be. I didn't know if it was going to be a swing guy or not, but I thought I had a chance for the fifth spot in the rotation. But as you know, Byung Young Kim was there and they'd gotten him from Arizona with right. you guys. And they thought of him as the guy who might be able to solidify that fifth spot in the rotation. And it only took six starts in the uh, – you know, I think it was like in May for them to figure out that he wasn't the guy. And when they gave right. me the ball back, then I felt like, hey, I'm, I'm here to do a job at the big league level to be a starting pitcher for a while, hopefully. Right. Well, and that was the thing that I was wrong on every account. And and, and the one I was most wrong on, the, I ended up, I, I was so proud of you watching this happen is after after you left. So we'll we'll get, we'll talk about the contract situation later, but you, you signed a very team friendly deal uh, to stay in Boston for all the reasons. I think any, I, I did the same thing multiple times. I signed team friendly deals in situations because I liked where I was. I liked the people I, I was, that was a dream situation for us. You made, you know, I, I, one of the thing, one of my favorite pictures is the picture of us in the hallway uh, that you, I know you've seen it a million times. Um, we made a hundred and four fifty nine starts of the hundred and sixty two games that year, um, and 
people people go to sleep on that. And every good team I was ever on, we did the same thing as starters. We all took the ball. And uh, not only did you take the ball, but you came in in, in, in relief in some situations that we'll also talk about. But I want to read these numbers off, guys. So you go to you go to you go to Cincinnati, and you have to me you probably your best season of your career in, in, in statistically in 06. You go 14-11, that's all good and well. Record is what it is. But but you throw 240 innings. And you do so with the innings at the end being as good as the innings at the beginning, which is always the litmus test for me. How are you pitching in September? Because I don't give a crap if you give me 40 September innings if you got a 7 ERA. But but then you run 210, 200, 220, 215, 199, 202, 202. You were a 200 inning guy. Um, you won your game 17 wins. You won 15 games three three or more times. Uh and and the St. Louis team wasn't a powerhouse by any stretch. And by the way, you were pitching in one of my least favorite ballparks on the planet because a pop-up behind home plate could be a home run in that ballpark. Um, but you became a stud, a horse. And you always had that belief because I can remember, you know, like I said, I, I can remember watching you thinking, okay, you know, when does his body just split in half? Because you can't put that kind of a workload but you had a, an approach to pitching. I want you to talk about your approach in the sense that you were a very unique breaking ball guy. You could throw your breaking ball five, six, seven different speeds, but you had a baseball IQ in my mind that was off the charts. Where did that, did, were you always a baseball smart guy and how did you get your feel for pitching? You know, it started early on. I can remember in that, that spring training of 04, you know, you talked about my body being so thin, you didn't think I could handle the pounding. And we had this one conversation there where I, I came, I came to the ballpark and I've told this a few times on the air, you know, I, I came to the ballpark and I, I pitched against the Yankees the day before three innings and nine up, nine down. I went out that night and I've always had a thing with motion sickness. So had a few drinks that night, but drank a little too much. And I was kind of nauseous the next day. And I went inside to ride the bike. And I remember Chris Carrenti sold me out to you. He told me that I wasn't feeling good. You came in and you chewed my ass pretty good. Um, and you're basically saying, hey, man, you're, you're, you're giving this thing away to Byung Young Kim. You know, you got a right. chance to get right. start in the rotation. And then at the end of it, you said, I don't think you can throw 230 innings with your body. And what people didn't know about me, what you didn't know about me at the time was that I had been in the weight room since I was a, since I was a five-year-old kid with my father. Yeah. I have I have DVDs of me as an eight-year-old. I saw that. I saw that after. Yeah, I saw those and things. I'm, I'm 60 pounds in 1985. I'm eight years old. I squat 255, 60 yep. pounds. I'm skinny as a rail. And I deadlift 235 and bench 130. These are records that have not been broken to yep. modern day. And so what happened was in that weight room with my father, not only were you having, when, you have, when you're pushing 250 pounds as an eight-year-old weighing 60 pounds, in order to gain five pounds over a six-month period to max out again, it's about strategy. It's about how tight are your clothes. It's about what food are you eating? Are you carbo-loading, right? So he right. turned my brain on for strategy early on in that weight room. And what that translated to on the baseball field was me really thinking about how to pitch, get guys to get off the barrel of the bat. And I never was really obsessed with the strikeout. Right. And the, the, the merging those two things together just made me kind of an outlier. I pitched outside the box. I didn't have an ego for strikeouts or velocity. The only right. thing I had an ego for was towing the rubber every fifth day and giving you 200 innings. And so you blended that stuff together. And as I came along, I realized in the minor leagues that my, you know, my 91 mile an hour fastball from high school couldn't dominate anybody anyway, even at the rookie league level. So the better hitters, you were going to need to find a different way to get the job done. And that started my brain on this, on this wheel of kind of like, how do you get outs with less? Right. And people don't generally think about that. Well, that's the Maddox approach, you know, in, in a lot of ways. I, I don't care how you make an out. I just care that you make one. Right. You know? I, and, and, and that ultimately, and I would argue, uh, I, I'd not argue, but I would tell you, 
I think I cheated myself. I, I came up at the end of the old school era when, you know, when you're a young player, you know, you're seen and not heard and all the things that go with that. I think that, old, and I had some of that older school mentality, but I think it cheated me out of getting to know players and teammates like you in a different way. Because you, you're right. I, I learned more about you after we separated and why you were so good than I did when I was with you. Cause I was always that, like I said, I came with that from the baseball perspective, you got to do baseball, this and that. And there I come to realize now, especially having, after having kids, there's no one way to do anything. And right. anybody that tells you is a, is a crappy coach and you had a very unconventional way, but you had a feel for pitching. And that to me, one of the things I think young guys these days fail to get is that minor league experience. I think I had six or seven hundred innings in the minor leagues. You had eleven 1, hundred. I I learned how to do all my things in the minor leagues. I had like thirty complete games in the minor leagues, or some stupid number. I knew how to pitch in the eighth and ninth inning, and we right. learned how to pitch in the eighth and ninth inning, not in Fenway, but in Altoona, Pennsylvania, or someplace. Right. And and you know you brought that to the table. But again, the hard part in me seeing you as a as a as an equal, which you ab absolutely unequivocally were, was that that I thought you had to be like me to be like me. Yeah. And I, can remember, I remember when you came in the locker room and we already knew the stories about you and Randy Johnson. Don't speak to him on the day they pitch. And I remember that that lasted through spring training. And on that team, you know, Millar was such a, a vocal guy pregame and stuff that I felt like that. I don't know if you saw this in your mind, but I, I saw observed you in 2004 sitting down and playing cards with the guys the day you pitched later in the season and 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 you kind of softening just a little yeah. bit, realizing I can still be a good baseball player without right. having to be kind of like this really stern military guy all the time. Yeah, and that was it was well, and I think be the the thing that I try to tell people is is early in my career I realized that there was a difference. I wasn't being paid to pitch; I was being paid to win, and 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 that was always a bit. I had to be, and it's one of the things I look back on too. I had to be who I was and act the way I did to get what I got from myself. And, and, you know, the, I, I would say that's exactly how you were. And it, because if you would have been a militant strict guy, you would have been a different player, a different person. And, right. it, it, you know, and that was, I think, again, I think that was one of the shames of the old school kind of way was, you know, yes, as a rookie, you come in and you're quiet and, and all the things go with that. But there, I think there was, I, I tried to, and I hope I did at times, take an approach of, Hey, listen, I, if I can help you be better here, here I am. And, and if I can help you do these things here, I am. And, um, on the day I pitch, it was like, that was my day. That was the day I wanted everybody to treat that day differently. And, and I couldn't, I didn't not by asking them, but my, but, but by setting the tone and standards myself and, and that became my day. And, and yeah, I mean, there definitely was, and I saw this, it's funny because, I've had a couple reunions, um, uh, and 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 I saw Randy Johnson, who now is like this fan ambassador, fan friendly, smiley guy, and it's like, and right. Mickey Morandini with it's like, come on, dude, seriously, and it's like, yeah, he goes, I wish I would have enjoyed it more when I played, um, but right. and I, yeah. I I I always had that perspective, you know, I was easy, I was an easygoing guy by nature. Yep. Growing up, my father had a really vicious temper, but I I, I just leaned a lot more towards my mother. I kind of had this easygoing personality. I could brush defeat off very easily. And, you know, I, I just felt like I needed to be a little bit more of a mixed bag. I didn't want to drag all the baggage right. from baseball. A guy like Tony La Russa, you hear him talk about how his day 
is going to be dictated by the wins and losses of the team. But, you know, when you go home at night, I mean, you, you know, Kurt, you play for, for 20 years, man. Your wife doesn't want to hear about the team right. every single night, right? So it's like you're, you're trying to separate yourself. You're trying to compartmentalize your life in a lot of ways. And I was really serious about the game. It took some time for people to understand that just because I had cornrows on my hair and I was playing an acoustic guitar, that I was really serious about my off days, right. my workouts. I mean, I never missed any of that stuff. No, nope. they, didn't, they didn't know me as a kid, so they saw the external stuff. And I wanted to have a good time. I wanted to throw a team party that was quality. But but even inside of throwing a team party, the details matter. And right. it's hard to throw a good team party. And people don't really realize that until after the fact. And then they go, oh, wow, man. Like, he used to make tapes for, for the rookies and pop them in on the bus. And we had a party in Arizona when we landed. And everything was there from poker tables to, to food and everything. You know, that stuff is not normal in the game. And, and no. as I got older, people started valuing who I was as a Lucy right guy but also was very serious underneath the hood yeah I, I i smiled every time i heard your name after we separated ways because i i i so loved that you defied expectations had such a phenomenal career inducted into the uh cincinnati reds hall of fame by the way which is no small thing considering it's one of the oldest franchises in the in the sport and the legends that that live in that uh talk to me about the music when when did that start and how did you get as good as you were, I'm, I'm going to assume it's like you did everything else. It, it's like you practiced till your fingers bled. But 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 how and why did and where did that start? So uh, so growing up, my father was in bands in high school and he was always singing around the house when I was a kid. My mother's on my mother's side, her mother, my grandmother was a music teacher in Key West, Florida for 70 years, a legendary music teacher. Wow. To where. She taught at school, but also people were coming in the house and there was many orchestras in the house all the time. There was always music around me and I heard it all the time, but it, I never gravitated towards it until I'm a freshman in high school in 90, um, 92. I hear Stone Temple Pilots. I hear Pearl Jam. I hear Alice in Chains. And there's something that was more serious about the music and the content that gave me goosebumps, right? In the weight room, I was listening to music with my father, but it was the Mamas and the Papas, the Beatles, Billy Joel. Right. And all the music was amazing. It still is to this day, but it didn't give me goosebumps. And when I heard Lane Staley and I heard guys, you know, singing like Stone Temple Pilots, it, it made me think about music in a different way. And so I was in double A with Altoona Curve and I saw an acoustic guitar from the clubhouse manager and I picked it up and started strumming that notorious, you know, beginning of Nothing Else Matters by Metallica, where you can just do the, the four open strings and you hear that song. And it just felt like, man, I really think I want to try to do this. And it was just like you said, slowly hacking away at your house and in your basement and on a rooftop playing song after song, just trying to figure it out. And just I used to always just imagine like, you know, there's going to be seven, 10 people in a bar sometime. They're going to listen to me play music. I don't know when and where. Yeah. And, and in the early years, it was a bit of a grind. But what I found in the later years, especially the, that first year in Boston, really 03 before you got there and then into 04, it helped me connect with guys like Tim Wakefield, who were from the older generation and, oh, yeah. and intended to be a little bit, you know, harsh on the young guys like myself. But yeah. if you could play the guitar and they wanted to play the guitar and you were a bit better than them, it opened up a line of communication. Yeah. And then, and then also, you know, when you finish a ball game, as you know, win, lose, or draw, you you never slept when you went home at night, right? After yeah. you pitched. And it was hard to get to bed for most of us. And so I find myself in a city like Chicago, walking two blocks from the hotel, find some concrete stairwell where it echoes really good and just sing for an hour and a half and getting that angst off your chest. Because singing is a real physical thing, not playing the guitar. Right. Actually singing at the top of your lungs some Pearl Jam. It is really, really physical. And so that that for me was just a nice release 
And it just felt like the flip side of the coin that could keep me balanced in the game. Wow. That's, I mean, that's a definite yin and yang, right? I mean, that's, everybody has to find their pressure valve and pressure release. And, you know, because I, you know, it, people don't understand, you know, you show up at the ballpark at two, one or two in the afternoon, which we did. Uh, and you don't get home till one or two in the morning. You don't go home and go to bed. You go home and you do something. And, and, and on the road, it, I, situations and teammates like you became invaluable because, you know, I always say Doug Mirabelli was so valuable a team because he was the guy that could make you laugh on the bus in customs in Toronto at 4 a.m. Um, right. You know, you were that guy who was invaluable uh, uh, for for because at 11:50 in in you know Detroit, we could be sitting in a hotel room with eight guys just shooting, okay. having a beer, talking. Ba- it was the reason why those teams were the way they were. I argue because we cared so much about each other. And we were so close and we shared so many moments that weren't machismo, tough guy moments. They were, hey, you know, quality of life moments. And and your guitar brought that. And, and I remember, you know, Millar trying to be, you know, Johnny Cash and all the things that went with that. But every one of those memories is is a fun one. I want to touch on your music career at the end of this because I want to I want you to talk about it and plug it. I want to know all about it. But I want to go back to Boston and a situation I've never forgotten this. Uh, and it, it 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 resonated with me when it happened. Um, you Boston comes to you. Or I don't know if you went to them. You clearly wanted to remain on that team in that franchise and in that city. They gave you a deal, uh, and it was an incredibly team friendly deal. Um, it was very Wakefield esque, I say, in 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 the sense that, oh yeah, this is a no brainer for us. Of course, we're going to do this. And I thought that my understanding was they did it under the pretense of I'm not going to give you a no trade, but hey, we won't trade you kind of under their breath, uh, which they tried to do with me, by the way. And I said, uh, F no. But um, talk me through that contract dealing, what you were thinking with Theo going through it, and then you signed the deal and you're, you know, euphoric. And then I think one of the worst, one of the worst trades that, and, and nothing again, I love Willie Mo, great guy, uh, monstrous human being who could hit a ball, untold numbers of feet. But the deal wasn't – I didn't think it was worth it when it happened and it didn't end up being worth it. Talk to me about the deal, the signing, how you felt, and then kind of, in a sense, being betrayed. Yeah, you know, so it's it started, you know, in, in oh, the year before was the first time that I had gotten to go to arbitration and went from right. making a league minimum, which was about 300000 to I got like $1.8 And so we knew it was going to come a time there where, you know, maybe there was going to be a deal on the table. And But Theo had left at the time. This is in the hiatus of – I forgot Theo, about that. I forgot about that. Right, so Theo leaves in the gorilla suit, and there's, there's this whole thing going on. And so – you know, they come to me, and at the time it was Jed Hoyer and it was Ben Sherrington who were kind of tag team in the right. job as, as young GMs. And so I had conversations with both of them. And I think this day it was Jed. I just remember him calling and offering. It was like 11.2 million with some incentives to get to 12. So it was basically right. like you said, a Wakefield deal, 4 million a year. And I, you know, my agent obviously didn't want me to sign the deal. And they, they were just saying, look, you're the youngest guy on the staff. You're, you, you're going to be the most valuable guy on the staff here soon if you can keep doing what you're doing. And you're basically signing yourself to be traded, setting yourself up. So I went to them and I, I remember I was driving to Gainesville, Florida to play a little acoustic show for a buddy at a restaurant. And I was talking to Jed and I said, listen, my exact words were, I'm not signing this deal because nobody else wants me to sign it except for me. I said, I'm not signing this deal to be traded to the Tampa Bay Rays for Julio Lugo before the season starts. And his exact words were, we have no plans on trading you at all. We have not even thought about it. It's not on our, it's not on our radar at all. 
And so I signed the deal against everyone else's judgment thinking, you know, listen, I'm a skinny white kid from Brooksville, Florida. $11 million goes a long way. I'll get them on the next deal if I'm good, right? If I'm good, it doesn't matter. We're going to, we'll get another one. And um, so I signed the deal. And part of that was I loved, I loved obviously the city. I loved playing under the stress of a playoff atmosphere every single night, even if it was a makeup game in an afternoon against the Orioles. Yeah. And you couldn't match that. Sitting up in the no. weight room, looking down on people on the street, walking into Fenway, knowing how expensive that is. And them are, they're walking in thinking like, I'm going to see the Beatles reunited tonight. Like this right. is an experience I might not give my kids ever again. And I just loved everything about that. And, and so I signed the deal. And I'm in spring training. You know, I pitch. I remember I pitched that day. I had a great outing against the Orioles. We were underneath a tent out in Fort Myers, having a little lunch with some friends. And um, I'm chatting it up with, uh, I had put that cover album out in 2005. Right. And a little part in the song Everlong that Stephen King, the writer, had wrote this part and did spoken word for me. And so Stephen King comes by that day and we had never met in person, but we talked on the phone and we chatted it up a little bit. And then I leave the ballpark. And before I even get back to my house in Brooksville, because the next day was an off day and I was kind of planning on what, what am I going to pack for Boston? I need some stuff. Right. And I get a call from Theo and by then he was back. And when Theo called me, I was on the line with my buddy Reppard. And I thought, Oh man, it was like a sinking feeling in my stomach. Almost you like knew. I knew. And I picked yep. up the phone and he said, he said to me, I got something I don't really want to tell you. And I said, you traded me to the Cincinnati Reds for Willie Mopena. And he said, yes. And I was just, I mean, honestly, that's that, that feeling you get the first time there's a girl you really want in the world and she leaves you like that feeling I haven't had many times in my life. And that was a moment that I was irritated, mad, just couldn't believe the betrayal. I just signed this undervalued deal. You know, we've got, we've got an aging rotation, right? You were there. Yep. David Wells was there. Everybody was pushing like 40, you know, late thirties at the time. And I thought, oh, I'm locked here. And uh, it didn't work out. And I, I was I, it was a hard pill to swallow. Well, I always I truly believe, uh, you know, my faith in God allows me to lean on the fact that everything happens for a reason. And I can't, you know, going to Cincinnati. I don't know how you felt about it, but it turned out to be a, a monumentally good thing for you. Um, you, you. Like I said, you went into the Reds Hall of Fame, which is guys, please don't go to sleep on that. I know. Uh, uh, but but getting into a baseball team's Hall of Fame is is an amazing accomplishment considering I'm a player. But but the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame is one of the legendary ones because they are one of the original franchises. They're hundreds a year, hundred plus years old. Some of the greatest players that ever lived walked through there and put that uniform on. And it's up until about ten years ago, Cincinnati was the center of baseball. They opened every season with the first game on a Sunday and uh, all that. And and he had a phenomenal career. I I, I I want to I want to move away from baseball, but I don't want to do it before I say this: two thousand four hundred and thirty-five innings, uh, multiple two hundred inning seasons, won fourteen or more games, what eight times, uh, or ten or more games eight times, fourteen or more five or six times, uh, had some phenomenal. Had a, a just it really was Bronson. It's something I'm sure you're proud of it, but but watching from the outside, I was so proud of how how good you were and how consistent you were. Here's the other number I love to read off. Starting in 84, you've made 29 starts. In 05, you made 32. 35, 34, 34, 33, 33, 32, 32, 32. And then your final year in Arizona, you, you, you made 14 starts, but you took the ball every fifth day. And you took the ball every fifth day, and you gave your team innings. And not only that, they were quality innings. You're, you, you, you were a top-of-the-rotation guy. 
uh, in every sense of the word. Um, and it was, you know, I, 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 I'm going to ask you about one Red Sox moment, uh, only because I want to know what was on your mind at the very second it happened. I pitch in game six, you come in after me in relief and you're running over first base to cover the bag. Cause you picked up the chopper that A-Rod hit and he hits your hand. I the, you know, everybody remembers. I remember the video of A-Rod on second base going like this. Like, what? The video I remember is you standing there looking at your glove and looking at the umpire like, did that just happen? Right. And I, what what was going through your mind and in, in that play and when that play happened? Yeah, it was crazy. I threw, You know, I, I knew Alex obviously was a guy who everyone said had a hole in the inner half of the plate. He, he You could beat him in, but and he loved to hit the breaking ball. Right. He almost had like a slider bat speed. And um, so I threw him a breaking ball, but I threw it like 68 instead yeah, of like big sweeper. Right. Instead of like 75. And he caught it right off the end of the bat. It was spinning like a top. So my first thing was like, don't let this shoot out of your glove. Right. It's so fast. So I kind of secured the ball thinking, OK, now I'm cool. I'm going to look up and Doug Mankiewicz is going to be on first base and he's standing right next to me. And so there's this <laughs> moment of panic. Like, I'm not going to be able to make this out here. And it's such a huge situation late in the game. I look up and Alex is just jogging. So I had plenty of time. So I kind of relaxed. I was just there to tag him nice and easy, you know? And he he hits my arm and my glove flew off. I didn't know where the ball yep. went. I caught my glove on the back side of him. And I, I look and it's rolling down right field line, you know, and all, you know, chaos is, is ensuing. And, and McCabe is looking at me. He's like, bro, are you okay, man? Because he hit your arm really hard. I was like, no, I'm fine. And then, like you said, you saw Alex pleading his case. And I, I, I've told a few people this. I was standing on second base and we were talking and Francona's out and uh, Orlando Cabrera's, he, he's doing this thing. He's going like this. You can see him on a documentary. He's looking at these guys and he's going like this and like this. And he's te he's telling these three Greek guys next to the dugout that were giving him all day. He said, um, he goes, he was saying, don't cry, don't cry. We're going to game seven. We're going to game seven. <laughs> and, and, and so I'm, I'm standing on second base and we're kind of talking amongst ourselves there. And Alex, I'm, I'm watching him and I'm reading his lips. And I'm kind of like like laughing, like this is ridiculous that he's trying to actually pull this off. And he says to the umpires, you see, look at him, look at him. He's laughing because you got the call wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To this day, I was like, wow, dude. I mean, he was like literally defending the indefensible. Yeah. But um, it was a crazy play, you know, and then after that, they start raining down stuff. Honestly, they call yeah. them out with the stands and with the riot crew coming out with the police. I mean, it felt like. Well, that know. was that was that was the 86 year moment, right? Like every the, oh god, oh something always happens because Jeter came all the way around to score on that play, okay. and and I remember it was the second time that the umpires got it right that day after the Bellhorn homer, and and Joe West was in that crew, and and I remember them getting it right, and then after they got the call right, I'm thinking. Okay, yeah, we 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 might actually we might actually win this game. Might be able to do this, right? And you got to remember, in 03, I'm warming up on the mound in Game Seven when we get beat by Aaron Boone's home run. Yeah. So in, in 04, it's the exact same feeling. You're in the stadium, and, yep. and it, it never felt like you had the ball in hand because we were up five to one in the eighth inning with Pedro on the mound. We thought we had it in 03, so it was it was this constant yeah. thing, like well, waiting for the other. I was telling that story about Game Seven. You know, after Johnny hits the grand slam, and we're up like eight or nine to two. I'm still waiting, thinking, okay, they're going to score six runs in one of these innings. What inning is it going to be? Because you know, and uh, all right, so let's let's switch off of baseball. Um, first of all, uh, I want you to talk about uh, what your music career brought to your baseball career, but I also like I, I want you to uh, tell people uh, what you're doing right now, uh, the band, and and where you can be seen, and where uh, obviously in this day and age you can find your music anywhere you can find music. I'm assuming. 
Um, but but where can people see you? Where can people get a, get a load of 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 the talent that you are off the field? You know, most of the time I'm playing within a two two hour area of uh, of Cincinnati. You know, I've, I've got a, I've got kind of two things going on. One one is I play in this cover band for the last 17 years around Cincinnati. We play everything from you know Pearl Jam and Nirvana to the Beatles and Tom Petty. We give you about a two hour show. It's about the sweet spot of music for a guy who played baseball, right? Because if if you want to go out and try to grind around the country, you're constantly losing money. But to right. sleep in your own bed every night, you know, charge thirty five hundred to five grand for a band. The guys take a good little chunk of change home every night. We give you a good show. It's it's about as good as it's going to get, right? We're playing tomorrow night up at a at a fair here, so it's like there's a bunch of fairs, right. you know, 1,500 people watching. It's it kind of works perfectly. I put this original record out in February with a whole other band of guys that I met back when I was playing with you. 2004. They're all New England guys. They all play in big bands. Jamie Aronson is Miley Cyrus's guitar player. He was out with Matchbox 20 earlier this year. So that group of guys, I always said I was going to write an original record. And finally I did. We put it out last February. We played a couple of shows at Innings Festival with Eddie Vedder. Um, and then we played the one in Tampa during spring training where Dave Matthews and the Imagine Dragons were headlining that. And so um, you know, that was a beautiful thing. You can find that record. It's called Some Might Say. I wrote all those songs out of my mind in 2018 and 19. And uh, you can find that on Spotify, you know, Apple Music, iTunes, anywhere you listen to your music. That's called Some Might Say. Some uh, Might Say. Okay. The album, the album cover's right here. It's white. Okay. With, with a, that's a collage that my drummer did. So if you want to see me play normally, look on the Bron Bronson Royal Band Facebook page. Um, you'll find our shows on there. We usually play 15 to 20 times a year. Every, you know, we'll play in Nashville in December for the, for, during, during the, uh, the hot stove. Really? Cheer. All right. I'll have to go. All right. Normally it's, it's usually it's two or three hours, but you know, we give you a great set of old songs that you've listened to and grown up with yeah. and it's an enjoyable well, it's, time. It's a beautiful thing too. I, I, you know, um, my, of, of my four kids, every one of them, uh, well, three of the four, they still listen to the music I grew up with. Our generation of music was unmatched. 80s and 90s, going into the aughts. Uh, I don't think we'll ever have another period of music like we had then. And it's why I think that music still lives on. And I think why, I mean, cover band is, it used to be kind of a, a the wedding singer kind of goofiness. But now you can make a living being a cover band because there's a lot of good old music. Um, what are you doing right now? What what are you? So I, let me ask you this. Harder to how hard is it comparatively speaking writing a song and pitching in baseball in big leagues? I mean, right. I, you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm asking. Yeah, I would say I would say writing is a whole different ball game, but performing, performing the similarities between being on the mound and being on a stage. Um, you know, the nervousness that the pregame jitters are, are there for sure. Um, you know, you get those butterflies going. You're getting that adrenaline going early on in the day. You're trying to prepare in a certain way. Um, you know. The difference, I would say, is that when you're pitching, I was never personally, I, I didn't care about what the, was going on in the crowd, right? Because right, 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 right. For yourself, your teammates and all of that. Musically, you have to care what's going on in the crowd because you they they paid a ticket to actually right. hear this music, right? And so you're not supposed to mess it up. That, that's the, di the right. big difference. Is that are, you you watching, are you watching the crowd and how it reacts and how they act when you're when you're performing? Is it, I mean, obviously it's it's a, it's important to you, but are you watching that? Do you feed off of that? Or does that dictate kind of your tempo? Yeah, the energy, the energy, if you can get some energy from the crowd for sure. But I'll say, you know, I've played for like 13,000 people and, and a lot of times I'm playing for 500. And the 500, I enjoy much more. You can yeah. see people's faces. 
You can feel the energy. It's more personable. When you start getting to a bigger stage and you're higher up above the people and you're looking down and they're, let's say, 20 yards from you and they're just kind of like a blob and the lights are in your eyes, it, it's not it's not as, as fun. You know, I don't right. feel the intimacy. So I, I enjoy the, the smaller shows and you definitely can feed out the crowd. If, if the crowd will give you some energy, man, because it's not easy to sing Pearl Jam for two hours in Nirvana. Well, it's like, not easy to sing for two minutes. Right. I know it's, it's hard to do that stuff. You've got to be in shape. And then not only, you know, people don't understand the layers. Like, you know, when you come from AAA, you get to the big leagues, just the way your uniform sits on you or how the mound is or, or the, the, the way the stadium feels could change everything about your comfort level. Well, on people, musically, if you're playing around a campfire and you can put your head wherever you want and there's no microphone and you're sitting down, that's one thing. Now I want you to stand up and play the guitar, have to be a certain distance away from the microphone to perform and now give people a show. Just don't stand right. there. Tom Petty, like, let me see you jump around a little bit like Eddie Vedder and see if you can have any any vocal left at the right. end of the show. And so there's these layers you're peeling yeah. back and, you know, I'm still peeling them back, but it's nice to have something to grind on because yeah. after the game, Sometimes guys don't have something to really lean into. And for me, the music has, has been well, that. I, and I'm, I'm so happy that it is. You know, I, I like I said, I've always uh, uh, very much valued our time together. Uh, uh, I, I, I thought the world of you as a teammate. And I was so incredibly proud of everything you've achieved on and off the field. Because, you you know, the first thing I'll tell people is you were a phenomenal teammate. You were a no-maintenance teammate. I knew you would do your job. You were going you were gonna to take the ball. You could be relied on, and and uh, you know, I didn't learn as much as I want to about you until after we retired, and that's all on me. But I couldn't be more proud of you, Bronson. I, I and so uh, some might say is the name of the album. Anywhere you buy your music, you can find it. Uh, the Bronson Royal Band Facebook page is where I'm sure they can find out what you're doing, what your what your latest uh, gig is. You're going to be at the winter meetings in Nashville in December. So I'm gonna have to uh, I'm gonna have to make uh, if you get a haircut, I'll actually I might come out and and, and what. <laughs> but hey, listen, man, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I really do. I know time is is the most important commodity we have now, and and I'm I'm, I'm glad I got a chance to spend it with you. And I wish you nothing but the best, my friend. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate hey, it. B, you take care of yourself, buddy. I promise you, after that interview, you know he never uttered the words. I wish I wasn't out there. Um. Thank you to Bronson for giving me the time. Uh, anywhere you can find your podcast or look for your podcast, Apple, Spotify. We love you to go to outkick.com. Uh, you can find it on the shows there along with Dan Dockage and Tommy Laren, uh, Clay Travis, and a bunch of other people who do some amazing stuff. Uh, hope you enjoyed the interview. I'll see you guys on Friday.